So Romans chapter 2, this passage, this, this is probably the most abused chapter in the entire book of Romans, in my opinion. So I'm sadly going to be correcting abuses as we go through this passage. But in so doing, hopefully I'll restore how great it is. I mean, there's some really neat stuff in Romans chapter 2. And I, I'm not exaggerating. It is, it is necessary valuable stuff philosophically, doctrinally, theologically, and just for self-awareness, all these good things. So here we are, Romans 2 verse 1. Here's our misused verse, the first one. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Let me start by telling you what this is not saying. This passage is not saying, don't judge others. That is not what it's saying. <laughs> that's obviously not a blanket uh, permission to go and be as judgmental as possible, but it's, that's just not what this passage is teaching. It's not saying, don't make judgments about the rightness or wrongness of other people's behavior. That's not what it's saying. Yet, I have had this very passage quoted to me as though it said that. Let's read it again, right? Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. What it's doing is it's analyzing those who make judgments. It's saying they're inexcusable. It's not saying don't judge. There's a big, big difference. So there's there are right and wrong ways to judge. Um, but as Christians, and the Bible is... <laughs> It's so clear on this issue. I don't know how people are so confused about it. But the Bible's really clear. We are supposed to make moral judgments on ourselves and others. Now, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And that's where the, the passages come into play that help us understand this. Where we, you know, we, we're not going to do it arrogantly. We're not going to do it as though we're blind to our own issues. Like, here we are. The, I'm righteous and I have no flaws and I'm going to judge you. That would be wrong. That's the plank in the eye issue Jesus talks about in Matthew 7. And people quote that wrong too. Matthew 7, they say, oh, don't judge. Matthew 7, like, well, read at least the first five verses of the chapter. Where Jesus goes on to then tell you how to judge. First, get the plank out of your eye. Then you'll see clearly to ignore the speck in your brother's eye. No, you'll see clearly to help your brother with a speck in his eye. Help get it out of his eye. In other words, I am going to make a moral judgment about what's going on. And I'm going to help but I deal with me first. Um, and we're also not to judge as though we know more than we do. That would be a bad type of judgment, according to the Bible. First um, Corinthians 4 verse 5 talks about this. Paul, he talks about his ministry. It's an interesting passage. He, he talks about his ministry and he says, um, I don't know of anything wrong with my ministry. As far as I know, I'm paraphrasing, my ministry is good to go before the Lord. Like I'm, I've been faithful and, and clean before God. But then he stops himself because he's sort of judging a little too much. He's judging beyond what he knows. And he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. So he stops short of praising himself like, oh, yes, my ministry is the bomb and I've done really. He goes, as far as I know, I've done well, but that's not what ju justifies me. I have to be clear as far as I know, but then God will ultimately tell me what really went on. So I should make judgments as far as what I really know and not any farther. I should do it 
after self-reflection before looking at someone else for their issues. But here's the point. I should do it. I should actually judge. If I don't judge, I'm actually, let me, and I'll say this twice just in case anybody misses it. If I refuse to judge, refuse to make moral judgments on others, I am now a moral monster. If I refuse to make moral judgments on others and myself, I am now a moral monster. I am a dangerous person. See, judge not does not mean make no moral judgments. In fact, anyone who says to you, judge not, is judging. Like it's required. I can't even say to you, judge not, unless I am judging that you're being judgmental. So it's impossible. You can't get your way out of this. Like you have to make moral judgments. But what if you didn't? What if you didn't? Well, that means that if somebody was was abusing their child and they looked at me and said, like, do you think I should stop? And I look at them and say, hey, I don't judge. I make no moral judgments. And they go, oh, okay. All right, I'll just keep going then. And see, what I end up doing is I end up endorsing evil and, and encouraging wickedness because I won't just call it out for what it is because I feel like I'm being rude. And that's that's not wise. That's not wise. If judge not is what Romans 2 verse 1 means, then Paul has just spent the first chapter doing exactly what he tells us not to do in the second chapter. He, the whole first chapter is judging mankind. And then he's... In verse 1, he's like, you're inexcusable, whoever you who judge. If you judge, you're inexcusable. Wait a minute, Paul. But you're judging me as inexcusable, so you're inexcusable because you're judging too. Now, Paul to this would say, exactly, that's my point. You're inexcusable. Don't judge isn't the conclusion. The conclusion is you're inexcusable. You have no excuse. You are a sinner. Now, the, the scripture does, like I said, tell us to judge. I'll give you a couple verses to support this idea. Uh, John seven twenty four, it says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So there's a, there's a not way to judge, but there's a, there's a right way to judge. Isaiah 5, 20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So we're actually said, Woe or judgment will be upon me. If I don't call evil evil and good good, if I switch them or mix them up, I have to have right judgment or, or else. Proverbs seventeen fifteen, it says this, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. So I don't want to condemn the just where I'm judging someone wrongly. But if I justify the wicked and act like sin isn't sin, that's also an abomination to God. So if I was to be a, uh, a church that's affirming sinful lifestyles, then it's an abomination to God, according to Proverbs 17, 15. So here's what it is saying. Romans 2, verse 1. Here's what it is saying. When you judge the rightness or wrongness of other people's behavior, you show that you know there's an ultimate rule of right and wrong by which everyone else and yourself are supposed to be judged. The problem is, you judge others for doing the very same things that you do, proving that you are guilty and you know it. That's what he's saying. He's talking about universal guilt. It's not really about judging. It's about guilt. In short, if I admit anyone else is morally wrong, I am inevitably admitting that I'm also guilty because I have done many of the things that I think are wrong. 
I like uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this in his sort of moral argument for God's existence. And he talks about how there are those who will say, like, it's all relative. Like, there's no real right and wrong. You can't really judge anybody. But the same guy that says that, cut, him in, cut in front of him in line and see how quickly he feels that there's, he's been morally wronged. Oh, hey, man, you can't cut in front. That's not right. It's, it's inevitable. Like, and then I judge others for cutting me off, and then I yet cut other people off. I judge others for being rude to me, and yet I've been rude to others. I judge others for acting cruelly or hateful or selfish and mean, and, and yet I've done all of that. So in that context, Romans 2.1 is a very powerful, powerful case for everybody. You know you're guilty. Because you know other people are guilty and you've done the stuff that they've done. That's what he's saying. Judgment in this case is a good thing. It just, it's just that it backfires. <laughs> it comes back upon me when I see that I've done the same. So verse 2, he says, But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Now, um, I, when I judge others, I'm, I'm basically saying, as far as I can tell what they've done is wrong, and then I know of things in my own life that are very wrong that I've done. I'm guilty. But Paul is now saying, but it's not like you're going to stand before God and he's going to say, so tell me, how do you feel you did in life? Rather, it's God that will judge you. Like your judgment reveals there is a righteous judge, but you're not the righteous judge. He's the righteous judge, the ultimate moral lawgiver. He's the one that is going to judge us and he will judge rightly or perfectly. Now, I, I take a lot of solace in this. Because life is really complicated. And um, you, you, we have arguments about nature and nurture. We, we talk about issues about why did that person really do that? Like, was, was this a result of them just being rebellious and sinful? Was some factoring in there of them being abused or, or mistreated in the past or possibly having some chemical issue in their brain or something like this? Well, this is the beautiful thing. God knows all of the details of every person's life. And he judges perfectly. He judges rightly. I make my best guess judgment on issues. Sometimes I just go, I don't know enough. I won't judge because not because there's no right or wrong, but because I'm not in a position to even know on that issue. But God will judge absolutely perfectly for each individual. However, this will not justify us. The Bible's still going to go on to say, yet everyone has sinned and everyone's fallen short. But it does go on to show us that this is righteous judgment. It's perfect judgment. It's absolute justice that God will be giving. And then verse 3 it says, and do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, you might feel like he's repeating himself a bit here, but he's not. He's, he's trying to drive it home because people miss the point. It's so real. It's so simple. But we need to not miss the application because we're incredibly good at missing the application. Ever seen crowds of people that just missed the point? Whole crowds being told like, oh, sorry, guys, the show's canceled. And then they just sit there and they won't leave because they don't realize there's application to the, the truth you just heard. You know? <laughs> there's, there's just something about us where we sometimes just miss the point, even though we, we are seeing clearly the, the truth. So the point is, you judge others. This is supposed to be screaming at you that God will judge you. It's not good news. And it's, it's, it's not that it's bad news because God is messed up. It's bad news because I'm messed up. I'm the criminal here. And I'm going to, I'm accountable. Like what if you found out that secretly the government had put on your car that you drive, they had put a special device that tracked your, your driving, timed it with lights. And they knew every time that you ran a red light in the past five years, 
Every time that you waited a little too long and that yellow turned red. They know every time that you, you did a, a California stop or you don't, you don't really stop where you're supposed to stop but you sort of keep going. And they knew every time that you sped. They could tell everything you've done wrong. And so five years of violations gets printed out and handed to you one day. And now they're like, you just have to pay all these tickets. It could be a lot of problems, wouldn't it? Yet God is watching our lives and sees everything we do and knows every moment and every single waking thought that we have. And he knows it all. It's all there. It's all out in the open. It's a lot worse than running red lights. So it's pretty, the application is pretty clear. It's just uncomfortable. It's very, I don't like it. It's very uncomfortable. It's very unpleasant. It's like hearing bad news from the doctor. It's like, is there some way to deny this? Some way around it? You just don't want it. So that's why he says, do you think you're going to escape God's judgment if you were judging others? So we make moral judgments all the time. Hopefully I do it rightly. God will judge perfectly. This is the conclusion we're getting to. Um, and I will have to face him. And, and, and shouldn't I? I mean, shouldn't God judge? Well, no, God's love. He shouldn't judge. God is love. God is love. He won't judge. I think part of the reason why God judges is because he is love. See, a lot of the sins I've done are against other things that God loves. His own nature, for one. Other people. I don't know about you, but if I saw someone treating my child the way that I have treated people in my past, I would perhaps have some judgment for them <laughs> of some kind. God must judge. I mean, doesn't anyone deserve judgment? Doesn't Adolf Hitler deserve judgment and wrath? Doesn't a serial rapist deserve judgment? Doesn't a mass murderer deserve judgment? The truth is, I want people to be judged. I just don't want me to be judged. Why? Because, because I'm righteous? No, because I'm me, man. I don't want to go through that. <laughs> it's just purely selfish. But I've also done wrong, and so... Romans is saying, he's drawing this all together. He, he's done a universal condemnation of mankind in Romans chapter 1 through specific issues. And then he sort of breaks it down into really common sinful issues at the end of the chapter. And then he's like, turns, turns the magnifying glass into a mirror, boom, back on yourself and says, look, you will stand before God. Now, do you feel that part of you fights this? Like, I mean, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Maybe you've, you've accepted Christ and you've totally accepted, I, I would be lost and rightly go to hell without Jesus. Or is there a part of you that fights it? That's like, no, I'm a good person. Despite all appearances and all evidence to the contrary, despite my history and my thought life, despite the fact that a righteous God would have to reject me for the things I've done, yet I'm still a good person because I just refuse, refuse to admit that I'm not. I remember talking to a lady one time. She, um... She had taken, I don't know if it was PCP or some sort of hallucinogenic type drug. And she loaded her child or toddler in the car, in the car seat, in the back of the car, or wherever it was in the car. And then she drove down the 605 freeway over here. She said she was going over 90 miles an hour and the police were chasing her. And she thought she was being attacked. She thought they were trying to assassinate her or kill her. And she tells me the story about how this was happening. We were in counseling and um, she was there for court counseling. She'd been required to come. And then she interrupts her story to stop and tell me, but I am a good mother. And all I could think was, no, you're not. I'm sorry, but you're not. You could be a good mother, but you have not made that decision. You are not a good mother. This is all I can think. 
why would she, in the middle of telling me about how she got high on some crazy, stupid drug, drove endangering the life of her baby because of her hallucinations and her delusions, and, and then who knows how many other stories there are like this in her life. And then she has to interrupt the story to tell me she's really a good mom, despite all appearances. Why? Because there's some part of us that fights admitting the issues that we have. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. So that's why Paul's like driving it home with verse three, verse uh, three. You've got to see this. You're a sinner too. Do you really think that you can look at others and think about how bad they are, but it doesn't apply to you? This is the plank in the eye that Jesus talks about. The speck is the things other people do to me. Other people offend me. Other people hurt me. But by comparison to what I've done to God, it's a speck. The plank is between me and God. I've offended a righteous and holy God with my sin. I need Jesus. So verse 4, he goes on. He says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Um, this is now speaking to the person who... They know they're in sin, but they year after year in their life, they will not repent. They will not turn their lives to Christ. They won't get saved year after year after year. And Paul says, you're despising God's goodness in your life. He's patient. He's gracious to you. He's loving. He's delayed judgment on you and you're despising it. You're despising the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long suffering. Not knowing that it's, it is this goodness, this kindness, this delayed judgment that's giving you an opportunity to turn. It's like the skeptic who, who says, if God's real, let him strike me down right now. And I just want to say, you know, you haven't proved God not real. You've just proved that you don't control him and that he cares about you enough not to do that, not to answer that particular request. You know, he's giving you long-suffering time that you might repent. And many people have been saved who came from that place and then later ended up getting saved. And I know they're, they're glad. They're thanking God for unanswered prayer. <laughs> So the goodness, um, this is speaking of the, the idea of the, the, the moral conundrum, the real moral conundrum of life. Why do good things happen to bad people? It's not so much that why do bad things happen to good people. It really, there's no morally pure people. So why do good things happen to bad people? Why, why do we have so many blessings that God gives us when we don't deserve it? Well, that's, this is delayed judgment. And some people, though, they take delayed judgment as permission. They really do. They really do. Um, but God is, God is good and he's righteous. And so that delayed judgment isn't permission. It's actually just delayed judgment is what it is. <clears throat> Second Peter 3, 9 puts it this way. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise about judging, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So there's a delay keeping the window of salvation open, like Jesus talks about the day of the, the acceptable day of the Lord that this is the time when God may be reached and appealed to and called out upon, and he will promise to draw near to you and respond to your prayers. Um, so now is the time. Now, this is kind of interesting. Let me let me draw a parallel of how, how uncomfortable people are with this issue. Uh, it is uncomfortable, understandably, but it's important. People love end times. They love revelation. They love hearing about it and thinking about it and debating it and talking about end times and the Antichrist and, and when is, you know, what are the, the bulls and the trumpets and the seals and all this stuff? Like, what are all these things really about? The four horsemen and, oh, this is all interesting stuff. And what will it really be like? They like talking about end times. And even, even skeptics and atheists who don't believe the Bible, they like talking about their version of end times, 
right? The naturalistic eschatology, the, the view that the sun will go supernova or that a, that a comet statistically will eventually hit the earth or that global warming or, or climate change will result in, uh, in such and such. This, this type of thing people are interested in, right? These are the things that get lots of views on YouTube. <laughs> this, this happens. But personal eschatology is something no one likes to think about or talk about. What do I mean? I mean, eschatology is a study of last things. Like, you ever wonder when you're going to die? What if I could tell you? I don't know, you might be like, I don't know if I want to know or not. That's different, man. If you could tell me when Jesus is coming back, I would like, tell me, I want to know. Are you going to tell me how I'm going to die or when that's going to happen? Like, I don't really want to talk about this. The, the funny thing is, is that I want to know about how all the world will, will, will one day explode or implode or replode or whatever. And I don't want to yet think about the fact of my own mortality. But as, as a Christian, I can encourage you guys this. It's biblical to think about your own mortality and to think about it frequently. It's a good thing. The Psalms talk about this. It, it says in uh, Psalm, I think it's Psalm 39. It says, Lord, teach me to number my days. Teach me to number them, to realize there's a number. It's not... I don't walk this earth forever. There's, I have a temporary amount of life, a temporary number of times where my bed hits the pillow at the end of the day. I'm going to get older. Either something happens to me or I just die of old age, but I'm not going to last forever. And I want to number those days and live them for the Lord. Ecclesiastes talks about this in detail, about the, the, the wastefulness of life if, if you're apart from a relationship with God. I think that we need to Consider our days and be wise. We need to realize that the scariest verse in the Bible, really, one of them is Genesis 2.17, where God says, you shall surely die. And all of a sudden, everything changes. Then in verse 5, in Romans here, it says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent or unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So on one side of the coin, we have delayed judgment for salvation. But for those who refuse salvation, this delayed judgment is, is actually going to have a negative impact on them because there's continued sin while the judgment's delayed. There's more speeding tickets piling up, so to speak, as we're delaying this judgment. Delayed wrath is not forgotten wrath. An example of this is actually um, in the stories of Genesis where we read about the Amorites. The Amorites were one of the groups that was inhabiting the land of Canaan when the Israelites were going to later come in and take over. But he tells Abraham that it would be about 400 years of, of bondage in Egypt, and then they would come out and they would take over the land, and I quote, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That God was being long-suffering towards that culture and towards those people, and their, their sin had not gotten to that point. You can read about Nineveh. Nineveh repented under the, under the preaching of Jonah, yet later... That city went back into idolatry, back into sin. And then Nahum, the next prophet to come, he actually ends up being the one who says, yep, judgment will come, and then it does come. And so it was a delay. It was like God's delay, 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 delay. But eventually it comes. Eventually the hammer falls, so to speak. The moral crimes of mankind are piling up throughout our lives. So this is fun stuff. I mean, this is nice stuff, right? This is good. Like, this is the kind of thing you want to go with. Like, hey, Grandma, guess what I learned in, you know, in Romans 2. Um, if your family's like mine, there's a tendency to try to paint everyone as though they're a lot better than they are. Because you care about them. But it turns out that this may not actually be very helpful. 
<laughs> in real life, you know, especially when you're con- contemplating your mortality before God. Um, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. And that's what Romans is really doing. Romans here is saying, it's like, it's like when you smell the food and you just suddenly realize how hungry you are. That, that's sort of the impact that Romans is supposed to be like, I'm, I'm, I'm smelling this salvation and the necessity of it. And I'm going, oh man, I really need that. I really need that for kind of forgiveness. So now we get into um, this next passage, which is, oh man, verses 6 through 11 are hijacked frequently by preachers of false gospels. This is abused worse than Romans 2 verse 1. And so let's, let's look at it and we'll see what it's really saying. Um, so God's righteous judgment, you're storing up wrath, God's righteous judgment, verse 6, it says, Who, God, will render to each one according to his deeds? Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there's no partiality with God. Now this verse taken out of context. Out of context. It looks like it's saying, if you're good enough, you'll get immortality, you'll get heaven. And if you're not, you won't. Now let me say this. That is what it's saying. But you need to add the rest of the context to understand why it's saying that. This is a verse used by false preachers of false gospels to try to say works for salvation, works for salvation. If you seek it, if you're good, if you do right, then you'll make it to heaven. And, and that's, that's sort of the truth. But let me, let me tell you this. This is not describing the type of judgment a Christian goes through when they die. When a believer stands before God, they do not go through the judgment mentioned in verses 6 through 11. That's actually 1 Corinthians talks about judgment we go through. This is talking about the judgment a person goes through who does not have Jesus. If you do not have Jesus, you have a works-based judgment. You get tested on how good you are. If you really were righteous, you get to go to heaven. That's true. The assumption false teachers make is that anybody is actually fulfilling that requirement. And the teaching of Romans in context is that nobody fulfills that requirement. Romans 1, Romans 2, everything we're getting at. And then Romans 3, he'll get to the point where he, he shows us very clearly that nobody's righteous. No one does good in this sense. Perfect moral goodness. And so we're all under wrath and we need Jesus badly. So if you could pass this test, in other words, of Romans six through uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. If you could pass this test, you'd be good enough to go to heaven and you wouldn't need Jesus. You wouldn't even be saved. You would just be righteous. Like the rest of us in heaven, with Christ, we'd be saved by Jesus. You wouldn't even be saved. You'd be like, yeah, Jesus did that for you, not me. I'm good. That's what it's describing. It's describing a person who, who lives perfectly. So let's read it again in that context. In that context, let's look at it. Verses 6 through 11. Who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good, so there's always doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, speaking of moral truth here, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. I mean, have you been self-seeking? Have you always obeyed moral truth? Have you always been righteous? Which, which, which category are you falling into here? I know which one I fall into, unfortunately. Um, 
And then uh, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there's no partiality with God, meaning everybody who dies apart from Christ will be judged by one standard. Are you good enough? The answer is no, you're not. And that's the overall teaching of Romans that people often ignore, is that the answer is no. So how do I know that, that that's... Um, that that's the case. Let me give you a few specific points so that no one could ever take this passage out of context and use it on you. Romans, number, I'll give you uh, four points. Romans does not allow a mixture of works and grace. So the people in Romans 6 through 11 are not people who have Jesus and good works. Like they're just perfectly works righteous. That's what it's talking about. It's just that they don't exist. It's just a hypothetical. Romans eleven six. that verse that I will drill into you as we go through this book of Romans because it's so essential. It says... And if by grace, if we're saved by grace, it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. Definitionally, grace means not works, and works means not grace. And so if I want to pretend that this person who has good works to get to heaven has grace, well, they don't. This is apart from the gospel. Does that make sense? That's why you can't use this the way they always do as, as a combination of, of Jesus plus good works. Um, number two, um, the overall flow of Romans one and two and three is condemnation universally. In fact, he says it, you're guilty, all of you, and you're inexcusable because you judge others and you know, you do the same things and God's judgment will be based on righteousness. And if you're righteous, you'll make it. And if you're not, you won't. So what position do you think you're in? That's the context of the passage. Also a works-based righteousness would disagree with the rest of scripture. Let me read you a couple passages. Uh, Galatians 3, it says this. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly the uh, righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture is confined all under sin, all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You fail the works test, you need the grace one. You need, you need Jesus by grace. Also Romans 8, 3. It says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, because I couldn't perform that righteousness, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So you fail the Romans 2 test, you need Jesus. That's the point. And then finally, um, as you just keep reading on in Romans, the following verses show us how to apply the things he just said about works for righteousness. So forgive me for laboring that a little bit, but it is so important that these target passages used by false gospel preachers, that you know them and that you're ready when people bring them to you so that you, you won't be tricked by it. You see it in context, see it for what it is. Verse 12, it says, for as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. The people who have the law and don't have the law are Jews and Gentiles. Jews have the law. Gentiles don't have the law, the law of Moses. So let's read that again with that in context, right? Those who've sinned without the law, Gentiles, they're going to perish without the law. Well, what do you mean, Paul? Well, he'll explain in a second. Uh, but, but they'll still be judged even though they don't have the Old Testament law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Well, the Jews will have an even higher standard of judgment because God revealed more to them. Basically, the more you know, the more you're accountable. Verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. It's sad that he has to say this out loud. There are people who think that they have heard the law. They, oh, I know about the Bible. Oh, yeah, I know the Bible. I could quote, right? Like, for God, 
so loved the world that that any I can do all things, right? <laughs> right? Isn't that what it says? Like, and 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 God helps those who help themselves. You know, people think they know the Bible, and then if they think they have a little bit of religious wisdom or a little bit of religious knowledge, that they figure because I simply have the knowledge in my brain, I must be okay. We don't realize that. No, man, that's just accountability. Knowledge just makes you more accountable. You got to do it. You can't just hear it. And so I desperately need salvation through Jesus. Um, so having the law makes you accountable. Fulfilling the law makes you righteous. But only one has ever done that. Jesus, who said, I've come to fulfill it. Now, this, this would be including that coveting, that pesky coveting command in, in the, the Ten Commandments, the Tenth Command about coveting. It's the one command that's about what goes on inside your heart. And you're like, oh, man, I felt, I felt a little bit better until I got the one that has to deal with the stuff that goes on in here and here. Because I'm not, I don't really want to talk about what goes on in there all the time. Yeah, well, because we need Jesus. Then in verse 14, he goes on. Now he's going to talk about the Gentiles. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. They have morals innately. And that moral awareness is what they're judged by. Verse 15, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. If my thoughts accuse me, I'm aware there's moral wrong. If they excuse me, I'm aware there's moral right. I, I'm, I'm, I have moral, a moral compass even if, if I don't have God's law, even if I don't have the Bible. Verse 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, now this... Um, this supports the idea of a biblical idea of unique judgment for each person based on what has been revealed to them individually and what they had, what were, what they were capable of doing and all that. Like God's judgment, like we said, is perfect. It's just right. He knows what you could have done, what you couldn't have done, what you knew about, what you didn't know about. And he judges perfectly. Um, however, it still condemns us all under sin, but, it, but it's not an unfair judgment. It's not an unfair judgment. It's absolutely fair. What this doesn't support, however, is that anybody's actually good enough to pass this judgment. <laughs> that's, that's not what it's saying. Um, and someone might say, but I've been good. I've been good. To which I'll say, well, except for all the times when you weren't good. Yeah, but I think that on balance, my good things outweigh my bad things. Where in the world do we get this idea that good and evil are balanced out in us? I mean, like, if you have a guy that treats five people really good and then murders the other five people... Is this balanced out? If I drive the speed limit 90% of the time and then 10% of the time I speed and I get a ticket, can I tell the officer, you know, most of the time I don't speed. We realize this doesn't matter. You know, I could be faithful to my wife and then cheat on her just once. But I just cheated on you once in all these years. Is that okay? Yeah, on balance. Why on earth would I think God would judge with this sort of wishy-washy, like, you know, it, it, it's like you turn your paper in and your, and your teacher says to you, you know, what grade do you think you deserve? And you're like, hey, you know, like, I'll just, I'm going to judge myself and approve of me. The problem is I don't actually judge me that day. God does. And I know I've done wrong. So I'm in serious trouble. So I haven't really been good. And, and God catches everything. He even catches the thoughts in our minds. And that's concerning that's <laughs> concerning notice in verse 16 after saying all this stuff and then saying that god will judge people by jesus that jesus is the standard by which we'll be judged 
in his perfect righteousness. And he's also the one who does the judging, as we read about from other scriptures. But then he ends verse 16 by saying, all this information, this is according to the gospel. This is according to my gospel. That's what he said. In other words, the, the part of the gospel about judgment is part of the gospel. The bad news is part of the good news. And that's, they go together. Unfortunately, they go together. So Paul is here condemning Jews and non-Jews. And I think you should use this stuff in witnessing. I think we should learn from Romans and how we witness to people. That means that I look at someone and I say, what, are you, are you aware of the Bible? Are you the equivalent of the Jew in this case? You know the scriptures? Well, then I will put the scriptures up to your face and say, okay, well, so have you, have you, have you loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, not really, no. Okay, well, man, you need, you need Jesus. You need forgiveness. You need salvation. But now if they have not had the Bible, I don't necessarily have to use the Ten Commandments when I witness. I can. But if they're not aware of the Ten Commandments, I don't have to be like, well, there's this book and there's these commandments in it and I'm going to use them to talk to you now. I could use their conscience. That's what Romans is doing. He's just using their, they already have an awareness of right and wrong. So I could say, in life, what are some things that you think are wrong that people do? Come up with your list. Okay. Have you done that stuff? Yeah. All right, there we go. Job done, man. I've, I, there's the bad news. God's going to judge you righteously. And so we can use man's conscience. Now, now, some people will say that they're good. And if they say, I'm a good person, then you can measure them by their own standard of goodness. And you will find that they fall short. They might just decide to call themselves good anyways. Because that's just something that's important to them. So they'll just say it. Um, some people will deny standards. They'll, they'll act like they don't have standards at all. To the person who says they have no standards, they do. Just talk to him for a little bit and you'll see. I remember hearing a, a student we had on a Friday night one time and he raised his hand. And he goes, I don't think anything's wrong with stealing. I don't see why there's a problem with that. And can you imagine why he thought that? Because he was a thief. you know. So I asked him if I could see his cell phone. So he sort of reluctantly handed me his cell phone. I took it and I said, nice cell phone. I put it in my pocket. I said, I'm going to keep it. And he was like, whoa, wait a minute. That's wrong. You're a pastor. That's wrong. And I said, so now you think stealing's wrong. Sometimes you just have to show them. <laughs> and uh, obviously I gave his phone back. I, don't even, I wouldn't steal some kid's phone. But the, the point is that you have to see that you're being silly. Like you're, you're pretending that there's no morals, but you know that morals are real. And everybody I've personally met, I'm sure there's people out there who really think morals are fake, um, that they don't really exist. But everybody I've really talked to, at some level they know that morality is a real truth. And then and you catch them in it as you're discussing it with them. You'll find them saying things where they reveal they really are judging as though these things are real, not just my personal preferences. Um, not, just, uh, not just my opinion. And so you can talk to them about that. Um, some people will still deny. Even after all that, they'll still deny. Well, I still deny. I deny that God judges. I deny morality. And, and to this, I just say, listen, there's no cure for this problem. People can choose to have a hardened heart. You can't fix this. You can leave them with some things to think about and you continue going because you can't fix if somebody, you, there's, there's no perfect set of words that will always result in people getting saved. You share the truth in love and then you let them respond to it. And that's what the Lord does. And that's what we should do. Um, yeah. Our moral judgments are real. And the scary thing about Romans two is these moral judgments apply to us. I make moral judgments and they apply to me too. Do you get that? That's kind of almost the summary of Romans 2. You make moral judgments. You know morals are real. What do you think is going to happen when you face God? It's a scary thing. Romans 3 will continue this theme. 
when we get there. We'll pick up here. We'll finish Romans 2 and maybe start into Romans 3 next week. I want to talk a little bit more about these issues. But I hope that um, that you guys can, can take some of these things as actually like pointers on how to witness and how to share with people is God has already given you a tool to access when talking about the fact that we have guilt before God. And that is each person's conscience. We all are aware of right and wrong. And we all know that we've done things that we knew were wrong. And so this is, this is the beginning of the bad news to lead to the good news of Jesus Christ for salvation uh, by grace alone. So let, let's, let's pray, and then I'll take any uh, questions you guys have. Um, Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, it, it, it's uncomfortable for some people to hear this content, but for those who have already received it, Lord, it's, it's just reality. Um, we're aware that apart from Jesus, we would be absolutely lost. We fall short, and if we were subjected to a righteous judgment, we would be found unrighteous. And we would suffer um, perfect and just eternity apart from you. Lord, we're just so grateful for Christ. Because he took our judgment on his own back. That we could be forgiven and have the, the, the grace and the knowledge of you, God. We pray that we be enabled to be better witnesses, Lord, that we could, without being um, that negative sense judgmental, that we would be able to have the ability to, to sort of stir up people's consciences, to make them aware of their need for Jesus so that they might get saved and be forgiven, Lord. That's our heart. We want to see them forgiven. We want to see them saved. And so may we give the bad news to give the good news and help us to do it well. In Jesus' name, amen. While I was dead